Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we're taking a trip back in time to Scotland in 1746 in The Highlanders. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and giving our thoughts and score out of five for the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, on to the story recap. Episode 1. As the sounds of battle filled the air around them, a small band of Highlanders composed of two young men, a young woman and a wounded older man are making their way across a moor. They are spotted by an English redcoat who fires at them. He misses but is killed by one of the young men. The group then continue on their way across the moor. A short while later, the TARDIS lands in the nearby woods and Ben and Polly exit, taking in their new surroundings. Ben is excited, as the geography of the area coupled with the cold weather makes him believe that they arrived back in England. Polly is sceptical and asks the doctor to confirm the time and place, but before he can answer, he and the others are forced to take cover from an incoming cannonball. After examining the cannonball, the doctor decides that they should leave, but Ben wants to explore the area and takes off for a nearby hill. Polly says that they need to follow after him, and an exasperated doctor does so. In a house, the wounded man is being seen to by the woman, who is his daughter, but she says that he is badly in need of a doctor. He deliriously asks about the outcome of the battle and he is told by the older of the young men that the Highland clans have been routed after being decimated by the English cannons. He then asks about the fate of the prince and is told by the younger man that he fled the battle early. This causes a dispute between the two men before the wounded older man orders them to stop. He then asks why they didn't leave him to die along with the other wounded members of their clan as his title of Laird of Clan MacLaren now means nothing after the Battle of Culloden Moor. The older man says that they will all be dead soon as the English are killing wounded and prisoners alike. They suddenly hear a sound from outside and both he and the younger man draw their weapons and go outside to investigate. They see that it is the doctor, Ben and Polly, who are investigating a nearby cannon that has been spiked and abandoned. The doctor sees a highland cap on the ground and tries it on. Polly notices that there is writing on the cloth headband, making a loyal declaration about the bravery of Prince Charles. The doctor flings it down in disgust and the two highlanders appear and take the prisoner back to the cottage. Once there, the Doctor realises that they are the Jacobite followers of Bonnie Prince Charlie, a claimant to the British throne. The Highlanders intend to kill them as they suspect they are enemies due to their English accents. Polly asks for the Doctor to do something, and this causes the young woman, whose name is Kirsty, to beg for them to be spared so that they can save her father's life. Ben uses the commotion to take the Laird's pistol from him and hold him hostage. The Doctor tells Polly to disarm the men and then he goes to check on the Laird. He tells Polly and Kirsty to go fetch clean water, but to be careful of English patrols. After they go, he tells the two men that if they promise not to hurt him, he will tell Ben to take the gun off them. Once they agree, Ben reluctantly throws the pistol onto the table, causing it to go off, leading to a reprimand from the Doctor and the Highlanders, as the sound has attracted a squad of British redcoats. The redcoats encircle the cottage, and the older Highlander tries to make a break for it to draw them off, but he is shot dead. The soldiers enter the hut and tell Ben, who is initially relieved to hear their accents, to keep his rebel mouth shut. He insists that he is not a rebel, and so they instead label him a deserter. The Doctor, in an effort to stop any fatal action by the soldiers, affects a Hanoverian accent and introduces himself as Dr. Von Weir. He says he is waiting for transport to return him to England. The sergeant advises his lieutenant that they should hang the rebels without further ado, but Ben says that they should be treated as prisoners of war, a sentiment that is ignored. All four men are then removed from the cottage. At the English camp, a well-dressed man is observing the end of the battle and commenting to his clerk Perkins that the slaughter of the rebel wounded is such a waste of manpower. 
The man's name is Grey, and he is the Crown's Commissioner of Prisons, a title he intends to use to profit from the sale of rebel prisoners to plantations in the overseas colonies. They make their way to the battlefield in an attempt to spare some of the rebels for sale. Polly and Kirsty return to the cottage, but observe their friends being taken out to be hanged. Polly, like Ben, is confused as to what is going on, but insists that they need to do something to save them. She throws a stone towards the cottage to attract the attention of the soldiers. It is successful, and a few of them are led by the lieutenant to go after them, having been given instructions to capture any woman due to a rumour that the prince could be pretending to be one. Despite it being illegal, though, the sergeant orders the hanging to proceed without the lieutenant there. Just before the stools supporting them are kicked away, Grey arrives and orders them to be placed into his custody. The sergeant is initially reluctant to let them go, but after Grey bribes him, he orders them to be taken down. Grey seems interested only in Ben and the young Highlander and tells the sergeant he can execute the doctor and the laird. However, the doctor quotes a parliamentary law that prevents citizens of foreign countries from being executed without contact with their homeland. He also states that the laird is under his care and so Grey takes them all away with him towards Inverness. Polly and Kirsty have managed to make it to a nearby cave that Kirsty's clan uses as a raid shelter. Kirsty reveals that the prisoners will most likely be taken to Inverness and Polly says that they need to go after them but they will need funds. She spots Kirsty's ring but she refuses to sell it as it is a family heirloom and pulls a knife on Polly when she tries to take it from her. Polly storms off ignoring Kirsty's warnings that she will get lost in the cave in the darkness. This warning proves to be true as she falls into an animal pit. As she is trying to put herself out of it a figure suddenly appears brandishing a knife. Episode 2 The figure reveals himself to be Kirsty, who helps Polly up explaining that she thought it may have been a redcoat that fell into the trap. Unfortunately Kirsty slips at the edge of the pit and falls in leaving both girls trapped. Polly climbs up on top of Kirsty in an attempt to get out of the pit, but hurriedly climbs back down when she hears the Redcoats enter the cave. The lieutenant berates his men for having lost the girls and orders them to return to the cottage for his horse. Polly tells Kirsty to make animal sounds to lure the lieutenant to the edge of the pit, leading him to fall in and be taken prisoner by the girls who begin to search for him for anything of value. He is incredulous at his treatment, but Kirsty points out it is better than how her kinsmen are being treated in Inverness. They manage to take 20 guineas from him and his credentials, identifying him as Lieutenant Algernon Finch. Polly also takes a lock of his hair, saying that she plans to use it, along with his identity card, to get in good with his commander if the need arises. They then leave him in the pit and make their way to Inverness. At Inverness, the prisoners are packed into a cell that is partially flooded, which Ben views as barbaric, but is told by the young Highlander, who is the Laird's ceremonial piper, that there are worse prisons. The doctor takes a look at the Laird's wounds, and the piper insists that he practice bloodletting in order to help the Laird. Ben says that that would kill him, but the doctor hushes him and uses the Highlander's astrological superstitions against them and says that the bloodletting must wait for the correct time. The doctor begins to wash the lair's wounds and comes across a silk flag underneath his clothes. The doctor removes it and puts it under his own jacket, waving down the piper's protest, saying that the laird would be hanged for sure if it was found on him. The doctor then rouses the prisoners by playing a rebel tune on his recorder. The guards come in to break up the singing and the doctor, reverting back to his German persona, says that he is a loyal servant to the crown and that he has overheard a plot to assassinate the general of the English forces. Ben tries to reassure the piper and the rest of the prisoners that it is all part of a plan to get them out of there. He then says that they should instead focus on their own problems as the water level is slowly rising and the tide line is well above their heads. At a nearby inn, Grey is discussing the loading of prisoners onto a transport ship belonging to his underling, Captain Trask. The sergeant then arrives, informing them that the doctor wishes to speak to them. He instructs Trask and Perkins to retrieve the prisoners and tells the sergeant to bring in the doctor. Grey dismisses the sergeant and then pulls a gun on the doctor before ordering him to reveal the details of the plot. The doctor tells him that there is no plot, but instead offers to share the bounty on Prince Charles's head with him, showing off the standard that he has taken from the laird. 
As Grey is distracted by his thoughts on the matter, the doctor throws the cloth over him and disarms him. He then binds and gags Grey and puts him into a nearby cupboard when he hears knocking at the door. He admits the visitor, who turns out to be Perkins, and informs him that Grey has taken ill and gone to bed. He then tricks the gullible Perkins into believing he is sick, aided by a few gentle slams of Perkins' head onto a table, and instructs him to wear a blindfold for at least half an hour. Perkins inquires about the knocking coming from the cupboard, but again the doctor tricks him into thinking that is part of his illness and reminds him of his instructions before leaving. Shortly after, Trask comes back and releases Perkins in Grey, who tells Perkins to summon the guard and instructs Trask to carry on the loading of the prisoners. Finch's men return with the sergeant, who attempts to extort money from Finch before taking him out of the pit. Finch is incredulous at this, but nevertheless agrees before remembering that Polly and Kirsty took all his money. He then promises to make good with the sergeant at Inverness. The doctor, meanwhile, has disguised himself as a scullery maid and is making his way down the corridors when he comes across Trask leading a group of young prisoners away, including Ben and the Piper and the Laird. However, as he tries to keep his head down to avoid being recognised by Trask, Ben fails to recognise him even after he accidentally bumps into him. The doctor observes the door that they are being taken out of and then returns to the kitchen where he found his disguise and then returns a short while later with food which he uses to distract the guards away from the door. Once the coast is clear, he makes his way through the door after the prisoners. The prisoners arrive at Trask's ship, the Annabelle, and Trask brings their attention to a corpse that is being dumped over the side, telling them that it is the only way they'll ever escape his ship. Episode 3 Ben and the others are forced into the hold of the ship, which is overcrowded and foul-smelling. The Laird seems to be getting his strength back and thanks Ben and the Piper for helping him. Ben asks around to see if anyone knows where they are being sent, but one of the prisoners accuses Ben of being a spy when he hears his accent. Ben is nearly lynched, but the Laird intervenes, recognising the accuser as William Mackay, an ally to the cause of Prince Charles. The Laird then introduces the Piper as Jamie McCrimmon, one of a long line of Pipers to his clan, and they both speak well of Ben, ensuring Mackay that he is a friend. Mackay apologises and informs them that he is the actual captain of the Annabelle, but he was betrayed by Trask, who was his first mate, under the pretense of being a loyal servant to the Crown. Ben refutes this by highlighting the treatment of the prisoners and comes to the realisation that they are all about to be sold into slavery. Outside Inverness, Polly is waiting for Kirsty to return from gathering supplies. Kirsty returns with clothes and a sack full of oranges that Polly requested. Polly says that they would pretend to be orange sellers to get into the prison so that they can locate the others and if they are caught, they can use Finch's credentials to help them out. They then make their way into Inverness. At an inn in the city, the doctor is mingling with the crowd when Finch enters, demanding a drink on account. Polly and Kirsty arrive, but the doctor is unable to grab their attention as they are accosted by the sergeant, who accuses them of being the women he was searching for earlier. Polly notices Finch, and together with Kirsty, they make him vouch for them, as well as getting the sergeant to empty the inn of soldiers. Once they are alone, they inform him that they know the prisoners have been moved, but they don't know where to, and so he tells them to look for Grey. Once he has gone, the doctor goes to speak to them, but is stopped by the arrival of Perkins, who is instructed by Finch to speak with the women. When they ask about Grey, he tells them that he has gone to speak with the prisoners. Grey arrives on the Annabelle and informs the prisoners that the Crown has given them three options. They can either give evidence against the rebellion, or be hanged for refusing to do so. The third option is to sign a seven-year contract to work in the plantation colonies. Mackay warns the prisoners that the plantation work is little more than an extended death sentence. Grey then uses his silver tongue to convince them that an honourable debt is still a debt, whereas the plantation work offers a chance for life. After some hesitation, all the prisoners, with the exception of Mackay, the Laird, Jamie and Ben, line up to sign the contracts. Ben then walks up in front of the line in offering to sign, but asks to be allowed to read it first. He then rips up the contracts and is knocked unconscious by Trask for his trouble. Grey orders him to be put in irons and placed somewhere else. He says he will return with new contracts, but if anyone follows Ben's example, they will be executed on the spot. 
He then says to Trask that Ben will be punished when he returns. At the inn, Perkin insists that the women stay with him when they make their, an attempt to leave. He suggests that they play a game of whist, but the doctor overhears this and joins the game as it requires four players. Perkin tries to protest, but stops when the doctor pulls a pistol on him. Gray then arrives and orders Perkins to get a new set of contracts. Polly tries to get his attention, but the doctor waves her down. Once Gray is gone, the doctor tells Perkins that he is going to leave with the girls, but Perkins is to not move for another ten minutes or he may develop another illness, indicating to the gun. The trio then leave and make their way to the barn where they hid earlier. Once there, the doctor disposes of the gun, showing the girls that it was empty the entire time due to his dislike of weapons. He then goes to lie down, much to the surprise of the girls, but he informs them that there is nothing that they can do at the moment as their friends are on board the Annabelle. Polly insists that they must do something and suggests that they capture the ship and let the Highlanders use it so they can escape to their French allies. Kirsty initially refuses, but the doctor says that she and her father will certainly die if they stay in Scotland. The doctor then suggests that they use the money they took from Finch to buy captured weapons from the English soldiers so that they can sneak them on board the Annabelle to give to the prisoners to free themselves with. He then falls asleep, much to Polly's frustration, and so she and Kirsty go to find a rowboat. Later that evening, Gray and Perkins arrive back at the ship with fresh contracts. He tells Trash to ensure that all prisoners sign them, but he is to use gentle coercion, otherwise it could lead to a riot. He then tells him to proceed with Ben's punishment, which will be a docking session into the water below. Back at the barn, Polly and Kirsty return with a boat and me- an meagre assortment of dull and broken weapons. The doctor soon arrives with a small arsenal that he indicates he stole from the local armoury. As Kirsty is examining the weapons, the doctor notices her ring and says that it is not a family heirloom at all, but the personal ring of Prince Charles, which he gave to her father as a thank you for saving his life during the battle. The doctor says that he can use it to save their friends, and she gives it to him. Back at the ship, Ben is brought up on board and his arms and legs are bound. He is then hoisted into the air with another rope and dropped into the water. Episode 4 After several minutes, Trask orders the rope to be hauled up, but they see Ben is no longer attached to it. They scan the murky waters but cannot see any sign of him. However, Ben surfaces on the other side of the ship and once he is satisfied that the coast is clear, swims to the shoreline. When he arrives, though, he finds a musket pointed at him by a red coat. Fortunately for the exhausted Ben, it is actually the doctor in disguise, who takes him back to the barn after showing him their gifts for the prisoners. Once there, Ben explains how he managed to escape to Kirsty and Polly whilst the doctor goes to fetch his own clothes. When he comes back, they go over the plan which entails the girls waiting while the Doctor and Ben sneak the weapons on board the Annabelle to the prisoners. However, Polly objects to this and both she and Kirsty insist on coming along. The Doctor then says that they will come with him to arm the prisoners whilst he gives Ben another job. On the Annabelle, Grey and Trask are debating whether or not to sail in the morning due to the heavy fog present. Trask tries to establish dominance over the group by saying that he and his ship are the determining factor of their success, but Grace says that without him they wouldn't have the prisoners in the first place. He also subtly threatens Grey that if he tries to reveal their agreement to the Crown officials, then his word would not be a match for Grey's, a statement which makes Trask back down. Trask then goes back up on board to oversee the final arrangements for their departure. Grey and Perkins are finalising their own business when Trask returns a short while later, with two sailors carrying the Doctor between them. The Doctor says that he is a deal for them, and after Grey tells the sailors to leave, the Doctor shows them the Prince's ring. He says that he received her from the prince personally and when pressed for his whereabouts tells the trio that he is in the hold of the ship disguised as a Highlander but only after demanding 10,000 guineas for the information. In the hold of the ship, the Laird, Jamie and Mackay are discussing their fate. The Laird wishes that he could see Kirsty again before he dies and his wish is soon granted when Kirsty appears at a gunport after she and Polly rode alongside the Annabelle. She starts to hand him weapons and explains the plan to him. 
Once the deal is agreed upon, the doctor tells him that Jamie is actually the prince, and the trio then leave to investigate, but the doctor reminds him that he is the only one who can identify him correctly. They enter the hole to find all the prisoners asleep and begin to search for Jamie. The doctor points him out to them, and once they get closer, the laird lets out a battle cry, and all the prisoners rise up to fight. They surround Grey and Trask, whilst Jamie leads a group onto the main deck to dispatch the sailors. In the hold, Trask and McKay duel, but Trask manages to wound McKay and escape up to the upper deck where he's confronted by Ben, who was lying in wait to block off the sailor's retreat. However, he is no match for Trask and he is nearly killed, but is saved by Jamie at the last moment, who swings into Trask, knocking him to the ground. Jamie then forces him back to the railing of the ship before pushing him overboard. McKay comes up on deck and calls a halt to the fighting. He tells the prisoners and the remaining sailors that he intends to sail for France and they can come with him if they are willing to work for him. They do so and begin to set sail. The Doctor and the Laird bring Grey up from the hold and together with Ben and Jamie go into a rowboat for a joyful reunion. Perkins begs to stay with the Scots, having grown tired of Grey's ill treatment of him, and the Laird agrees to it. He and Kirsty then rejoin their countrymen and the travellers wish their new friends good luck. Back on the shore, the travellers watch as the ship leaves, with Polly upset that they never got to say goodbye to Jamie. Ben says that he disappeared when they were leaving and suddenly Jamie appears nearby. He says that he stayed behind as he overheard their plans to try and make their way back to the TARDIS and offers to help them navigate the area and avoid the English patrols. Ben tells them to duck for cover from a nearby patrol but Grey calls out attracting the soldiers' attention. Together, the Doctor, Ben and Jamie dispatch the soldiers but Grey escapes. Realising without Grey as a hostage, their journey to the TARDIS would be more difficult but the Doctor reminds Polly that they have another friend that they can go to. Outside the inn, the travellers encounter Finch and enlist him to help them. He is reluctant to go until his commanding officer comes outside looking for him. The doctor then shows him the prince's ring and he orders Finch to aid them in, in apprehending Prince Charles. They go back to their cottage where their adventure started and on the way Polly tells Finch everything that has happened to them and about Grey's side business as well. Polly returns his credentials to him and moments later Grey arrives with a squad of soldiers, ordering Finch to arrest them all. However, Finch instead arrests him for slave trading as he has no legal backing since the contracts that the prisoners were signed were stolen from him by the doctor. Finch leaves with a thank you kiss from Polly and the travellers say their goodbyes to Jamie but Polly, fearing for his safety, asks if he can come with them. The doctor agrees but on the sole condition that Jamie teach him to play the bagpipes. Once they get back to the TARDIS, Polly, gently but firmly, pulls an apprehensive Jamie into the TARDIS which takes off once they are all on board. End of the story. Now that's the story recap out of the way with, we're going to go, as always, going to go over to the trivia section to Trisha for some interesting tidbits. Cool. Thank you, Paddington. So the air date for the Highlanders was the 17th of December 1966 to the 7th of January 1967. The credited writers for this story are Elwyn Jones and Jerry Davis. Interestingly, although commissioned to write the story, Elwyn Jones didn't actually do any work on the story at all. He was too busy with other projects. So this is his only Doctor Who credit and he didn't actually do anything. <laughs> this kind of reminds me of, was it the massacre that was written by the husband and wife couple, but she didn't add anything to it, but she's credited on it. Yeah, so the other credited writer for this is Jerry Davis, who was the script slash story editor at the time. And he's the one who actually wrote all four scripts. Now, usually the script editor, you know, cleans up the scripts, things like that. We've discussed that before, you know, like Dennis yeah. Spooner did some stuff um, last week and things like that. 
But in this case, I imagine because Elwyn actually did nothing, they sort of realised, well, we have to credit Jerry Davis because he's the one who actually wrote it. (laughs) But since he was the script editor, he shouldn't really have been writing scripts completely or whatever. He should have been writing them with somebody else. Um, So they decided to include both. We did previously discuss Jerry Davis when we were talking about The Tenth Planet. He co-wrote that story with Kit Peddler. And this is actually of his four Doctor Who stories. This is the only one to not feature the Cybermen. Obviously, working on Tent the Planet, he was part of the duo that created the Cybermen in the first place. And we will have two more of his Doctor Who stories still to come. So is, it, is he kind of like the Terry Nation of Cybermen? I think it's a combination of him and Kit Peddler. Because Kit yeah. Peddler, we discussed before, like he was sort of the scientific advisor and you know clearly was very interested in that side of things. I, I love I love Kit Peddler's name as well because I just imagine a guy selling football jerseys at the side of the road. <laughs> you went to football jerseys. I went with cars, like in Knight Rider. <laughs> <laughs> Own oh, this genuine memorabilia of Knight Rider. <laughs> anyway, moving on. The director for the story was Hugh David. This is the first of two Doctor Who directing credits for Hugh. We'll see his work again-ish in Fury from the Deep. I say ish for missing reasons. Uh, He was also considered to direct The Underwater Menace, but he rejected the offer because he felt the story was too expensive for the show's budget and he wouldn't be able to do it properly. Well, next week we'll actually find that out. Mm. Now, Hugh was actually an actor in the early to mid 1960s and he was actually considered for the role of the first doctor but Verity thought that he was too young because he was only 38 at the time and that's actually a scene in the adventure in space and time which we covered Mm. that and the guy that um was going through so it was Mervyn Pinfield and his first name was Rex I can't remember what his last name was Harrison I believe is it because Rex Harrison is my fair lady no in that case it wasn't Rex Harrison who the hell was it uh, so while we find the last name, um, it turns out that the reason that particular person kept suggesting Hugh David is because Hugh David was a really good friend of his. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, you know, yeah, it's, like it's quite common to... in, yeah. um, particularly in TV at that time, which even in TV now. Hmm. Um, this was actually mentioned somewhere. Let me find it. Rex Tucker. Rex Tucker. I was confusing two different names that are actually mm. completely different people altogether. Anyway. Cool. Another interesting fact about Hugh David is actually he was married to Wendy Williams. And that might be a name that sounds familiar to you, Paddy, because she went on to be Vira in the Tom Baker story, The Ark in Space. Ah. Which is actually one of my favourite stories. I really yes. like that one. Uh, we will get to that eventually. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> Hugh passed away in 1987. So this is the final pure historical story that we're going to see for a long time. Mm. The next quote-unquote pure historical in that there are no science fiction elements will be Black Orchid and that's not until the fifth Doctor. Even then though, a lot of people don't consider that story, Black Orchid, to be a pure historical because it's not actually based in historical fact it's just set in the past but it's not set 
you know, this is based around actual events. All right. Well, like, you know, you could argue, like, that some of the previous uh, historicals, like, don't come, like, I mean, like, the Aztecs, like, I don't imagine, like, that there was ever specific people called Clatoxel and Outlock and... No, but it's based around historical facts as such, yes. if okay, you get my drift. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, similarly, even the Time Meddler, while yeah. that's not a pure historical, it does have historical yeah. fact built into it. Um, so this is actually the last one that we're going to be discussing from a pure historical perspective for a while. Put it that way. When you keep saying historical fact, all I could think of leads. It's only the Bible. It's not gospel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dara. Anyway, as I've mentioned uh, when talking about Hugh David, all four episodes of this story are currently missing from the BBC. There has been, to this point in time, when we're recording, no animated version of this story released by the BBC. So we are once again back to our old friends at Loose Cannon who reconstructed the story using the surviving audio, stills, a couple of filmed inserts they did themselves, and that type of thing. The working title for the story was actually Culloden. Culloden? Culloden. Culloden, thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, The Battle of Culloden was the final confrontation of the Jacobite Rising in 1745, and this is like 1745-1746. Though a number of historical characters are mentioned, so Bonnie Prince Charlie and so on, Grey is actually the only real real world historical person to appear in the story. So Grey actually existed and mm. he actually did send prisoners as slaves. Except apparently one of the stories that I saw was that one of the contracts were lost, so he wrote all the names himself and just sent them off prick the Highlanders in terms of missing stories actually has a bit of a reputation and this is why I find it funny that it hasn't been animated yet it was the first story to be wiped on the 9th of March in 1967 bear in mind the final episode aired on the 7th of January 1967 so it was two months later they decided to wipe it so Question, given, given no, because I um, haven't really thought about it, but would episode three of this be the very first Doctor Who new, uh, New Year's Day special? Uh, let's see if we're doing seven. Yeah, yeah, that would have been a New Year's story. Mm-hmm. They thankfully they didn't do what they did with with yeah that episode <laughs> that happened to take place at Christmas. Yes, yes, that's annoying. So, on to our cast. So, as Kirsty, we have Hannah Gordon. This mm-hmm. is Hannah's only televised Doctor Who acting credit. I specify televised because she did voice um, Skagra's ship for the webcast version of Shada, which is interesting. Her other acting credits include David Copperfield, Great Expectations, Jack and Nori, Upstairs, Downstairs, Watership Down, The Elephant Man, Taggart, and Heartbeat. Grey was played by David Garth. This is the first of two Doctor Who appearances for David. We'll see him again in Terror of the Autons. His other acting credits include Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, General Hospital, Dixon of Doc Green, Special Branch, The Further Adventures of the Musketeers, Emergency Ward 10, 
and the Avengers. Hey, bingo cards all around. <laughs> David passed away back in 1988. Trask is played by Dallas Cavill. This is actually the third of five Doctor Who appearances for Dallas. We previously saw him in Reign of Terror, where he was the Roadworks Overseer. And he was then in the Daleks Master Plan as Bors, one of the criminals that was stranded on Desperus, who tried mm. to get onto the ship and the Doctor shocked them. Yeah. We will see Dallas again in The Ambassadors of Death, and again after that in Castrovala. His non-Doctor Who acting credits include Crossroads, Zed Cars, Dixon of Doc Green, and The Avengers. Big bingo card score there for Dallas. Dallas passed away back in 1993. As Finch, we have Michael Elwin. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit from Michael. His other acting credits include Coronation Street, the 2007 TV series of Robin Hood, Doomwatch, Softly Softly, The Avengers, and The Newcomers. Lastly, we have our new companion in the form of Jamie McCrimmon, who's played by Fraser Hines. Fraser was born in 1944 and actually had his acting debut at the age of eight. Before getting the role as Jamie, Fraser appeared in Charlie Chaplin's The King in New York, The Young Jacobites, The Silver Sword, Emergency War 10, and Coronation Street. I just have this image of an eight year old Fraser Hines still in a kilt, just like <laughs> acting in all these parts. Jamie was wasn't how to put it. Jamie wasn't originally meant to be a companion. There was the option. The contract he signed had an optional three stories in case they wanted him to stay on a bit longer. But originally, he actually filmed Jamie watching everyone leave in the TARDIS, and he stayed behind. After they filmed it, though, Inns Lloyd asked him if he'd like to become a full time companion, and so they had to redo that final scene in order for it to make sense that Jamie went with them. Mm. After Doctor Who, Fraser's probably best known for his portrayal of Joe Sudgeon in Emmerdale Farm, which later just got renamed to Emmerdale. I didn't realise this, that they're actually the same show. <laughs> it's actually, they actually make a joke about an episode of Bottom where it's like, you know, oh, Emmerdale Farm is just called Emmerdale now. I think it's because they need to get more Emmerdale onto television. <laughs> He played this role from 1972 to 1994. Fraser has named this, The Highlanders, as his favourite story because it's the one that led him to being in Doctor Who. And like he's still like incredibly active in uh, Who to this day, I think. Oh yeah, like he does a lot of stuff with Big Finish. He's been very um, invested in specials and things like that. And when we get to his sort of final companion story, we'll talk a bit more about what he's done. Yeah. with who from that point on but spoiler warning it's going to be a while before we get to talk about that <laughs> yes absolutely for a guy who was never meant to really be a companion or maybe would be a companion for three stories we're going to be talking about jamie mccrimmon for fucking ages yes but we won't say when we're just going to say it's a long time <laughs> indeed So, uh, as always, we are now going to go on to the character discussion side of things. So we have the Doctor, the companions, alongside their story-based companions, and the villains of the piece. So, as always, we'll start off with the man himself, the Doctor. So, Trish, would you like to lead us into this? 
Sure. Um, I wasn't quite sure what to make of the Doctor in this story. Particularly coming off last week's story. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just a sort of... It's very hard to get a firm handle on him in this story. Compared to what we had last week. One mm. thing that is very obvious, he's very quick on his feet. Can be able to yes. cover story in two seconds. The German accent, though, was... Um, it was fierce dodgy. I mean... <laughs> There's doing a racist accent. And then there was this. It, it Oh, it was so bad. It, it's stereotypical British actor pretending to be German type stuff. Yeah. Oh, so bad. But as in the accent was bad. The accent was cringeworthy. The idea behind the accent and pretending to be a German doctor. That was stuff was brilliant, but just the accent itself I found very and talented as well like being very tongue-in-cheek like dr von Weir is like dr who in german yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but like and that's not the only disguise he has like it's interesting that we only have four episodes for this story hmm. but he disguises himself as the german doctor several times that crops up several times he has his i don't know is this his first of many forays into cross-dressing and then he also dresses up as the red shirt yeah. at the end of it. Um, I, also, I, I would say like that the the German doctor is more of a persona than a disguise because he still looks like him. Whereas True, the other two, but he's not like being he, himself. Yeah, but whereas the other two, he's actually literally, you know, he's put on like the the apron and the penny and, you know, he's got the the head shawl and then he's like, he has a fake mustache, I think, when he's pretending to be a soldier. Yeah. Um... The thing that I love about this, though, is that it really highlights how different he is from Doc Bill. Like, we saw Doc Bill dress up, and we saw Doc Bill play a part when he needed to, Reign of Terror being an example, right? Where Mm. he dressed up and pretended to be someone else. Similarly, you know, if we're talking about the Romans, you know, we're talking about historical stories here, he's used to playing the part. With Doc Pat, though, it's different because he gives it 110%. Yeah. And he's jumping from one character to another character to another character. Very rarely is he being himself. Hmm. Whereas when Doc Bill did it, it was like, he said, oh, I'm this other person. But he was fundamentally just acting like himself. Yeah. He never acted like, you know, someone in power or things like that. He just said he was. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that I just noticed for this doctor was it was weird to see him so free in terms of threatening people. Yeah, like Like he's... he has Ben draw a gun on the Laird mm-hmm. and doesn't comment about it at all. He himself draws a pistol on someone. It doesn't matter that it wasn't loaded. It was weird to see him draw one. And then <laughs> repeatedly smacking Parkinson's head off oh, the table. I'm sorry, but that was hilarious. It was like, you know, you're not feeling what are you? Bonk. You're starting to feel the effects now. Bonk. <laughs> Do you have a headache? Bonk. I was like, what the hell are you doing? Um, but again, it's 
it's great like this is our second story with him last week we said we had regeneration or rejuvenation or whatever we want to call it changes happening so his, his character was a little bit all over the map anyway regeneration rejuvenation recasting re whatever yeah like to... um this week though it sort of cements the fact that okay this is now his at least his second story hmm. or a second adventure you know with ben and polly he is different yeah oh, and absolutely. that's very obvious absolutely like um i my initial notes are the name is doctor the doctor <laughs> he's like this is the most secret agent based story i think the doctor has ever done whereas like yes he puts on the the, the fake accent to howls of laughter on our side of things um you know the multiple disguises leaping into action when when it's necessary um and i i hate the fact that this story is missing for the simple fact of in the previous story which is now animated so we get some semblance of it that we get to see patrick troughton as like we saw like, the various different sides of his doctor like you know like how scared like how he actually is scared when he's scared as opposed to as we said william hartnell who is like very he's very he has that stiff upper lip type thing that he mm. i won't be intimidated by you whereas like his is like oh shit oh shit oh shit oh shit um and here we get to see the other side of his thing which is that he's a fa- patrick Trone is a fantastic comedic actor and the fact that we have all these scenes where you know he's with Perkins or when he's dressed up as a scullery maid or whatever it is, they're all missing. Um, uh, it's such a shame. Like it, it is such a shame. No, thankfully there are, like it, this isn't like a thing that dies away with his doctor. This is always there, but you'd like to see it for the first time. You like you'd like to see the first instances of it. Yeah, and like when I was talking about the trivia, I said that I. It surprises me that there's no animated version of this. It was the first one deleted. Yeah. It should have been the first one restored, <laughs> surely. But like, the, the app, well, see, this is the thing though, is that I suppose they want, the first one restored was the invasion. Mm. Yes, it was the invasion, which I suppose in in his tenure or is like is an incredibly popular story, whereas the Highlanders maybe not so much and I think as well that um, because there were so many existing episodes left of the invasion that they decided to try it out I think I'm just trying to think off the top of my head but I can't remember the first fully missing serial that was was it the power was it power, was of the, it power? Was the fir- what was it power I think power is the first completely missing serial to have an- animation on it hmm. But which again, like as we discussed last week, is a fantastic story. So, um, but uh, yeah, just like when I was doing, because as you know, like I watch an episode a day to uh, prepare my notes. Um, we get we are fourteen episodes in to Patrick Troughton's run before we get to see him act yeah. live, as opposed to just like, and it's it's so weird when you say that out loud. Like he's an iconic, he's an iconic character. He's an iconic doctor, and his first thirteen episodes are missing. Mm. Uh, spoilers for next week. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that this the second of three pieces has now fallen into Patrick Jones' like performance as the doctor perfectly. 
And I think now with the addition of a new companion, because we've had him, his first story, we've had his first story with his existing companions and a new person come on board. And now next week we're going to have his first story with existing companions, new companion who becomes an existing companion, and we're going to see how it is there. So as part of his trilogy of opening performances, he's great in this one again. Yeah, I'd agree. So speaking of companions, mm-hmm. we have our companions for this story. So we have Ben and Polly continuing on from last week. And then we're going to have our new companion of Jamie. And then we have our story-based companion of Kirsty. So if we start off with Ben and Polly, mm-hmm. what did you think of Ben this time around? A good, no- a good Navy man knows how that he must be a strong swimmer. <laughs> and he really does show it here like because he does the like swimming from one side holding his breath underwater then swimming from one side and swimming to the shore and it's great um so ben and polly because i'm going to address it now with ben mm. is there for, for me watching it right and i don't know whether it was just you know because um as we mentioned before like that we're irish and watching a story where you have English uh, characters not fully realise what's going on when they're in their period of their own history. I, I thought it was kind of surprising, especially with uh, Ben being in the Navy. He would have probably had a knowledge of like the, the Jacobite Rebellion or even like the, the Scottish Wars. So being surprised that the Scots aren't happy with the English coming? Yeah. <laughs> like... I wrote this down that like you have a sailor who's clueless hmm. about military history. No, not everyone that goes into the military is like will be a buff of the military history. It's just the thing like you the military or the navy or whatever. It's a good job, like it's a steady employment. If if you're looking for steady employment, you don't need, you don't need to fully understand like the the lore of the battalion or whatever it is that you're involved in. But I just found it a small bit strange. Yeah, but the point I'm trying to get with oh, Ben, though, is that they had an opportunity here to have a Barbara moment mm. where you've been saying, like, oh, yeah, I may just be a sailor. You know, I'm not an officer. Yeah. But I know my military history. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I'm surprised they didn't take advantage of that fact. And instead, I- they have himself and Polly not only come across as clueless but kind of callous like particularly Polly because po- Polly we have said is a great read of people she yeah. reads people really well and she reads the situation really well which she does later in the story mm. perfectly and we'll get that in a but the fact that they are so yay the English are here to save us thank god the English are here it's like are you blind as well as stupid like but like we, we when i messaged there the other night about this it, like and it's a case of it's no matter what country that kind of presents something it's a case of like history is written by the victors and like obviously the the scots lost the the battle of culloden war like the jacobite rebellion failed and so again it's a case of certain things aren't taught or they're taught yeah. from a very skewed perspective. So I can account for it with that regard, that side of things. But when you're actually kind of in there, like I, they eventually realise what's going on and like that things aren't as 
as per- initially portrayed in their own time. I think it just took a small bit too long for them to realize that for me. Yeah, I would agree. I think particularly when Polly went off with Kirsty. Yeah. That should have been the end of it. Mm. Yeah, but the fact uh, that she's still saying like, but they're English. Why do you care? It's like, oh, Polly, does. it doesn't matter why she mm. cares at this point. It just matters that she does care. Mm. Like, forget the history part. They clearly make her uncomfortable and she clearly yeah. said they're going to kill her. So d- just leave it alone. <laughs> like, But on the flip side of it, when mm. they do see what's going on, they, like, Ben effectively says, like, you know, like, you can't treat them like this. They're prisoners of war. It's yeah. it's morally reprehensible what you're doing here. And Which, like, again, is him being like, I may just be a sailor. Yeah. But this yeah. is a time of war. These are prisoners of war. Again, it was like, but bring the history part into yeah. it. There. It'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Like. yeah. And, uh, like, it's, it's great. Like, you know, like, he... Is that he really stands up for for them like, as well? Like when he's in the prison, and the doctor has just said like I'm going to sell these prisoners out. It, it takes a very, it's a lot of balls on Ben's behalf to try and placate that crowd of men. Yeah, because he's trapped in there with them, and they could rightfully tear him to shreds. But yeah. thankfully, the Laird, um, you know, kind of realizes what's going on, and he's okay with it. And one thing, another thing I like about Ben in this is that he's scully esque tendencies are completely gone by virtue of the fact that he just seems to be fully on board with wherever the TARDIS lands next mm. so there was two things I found in this with Ben right mm. A you know it's nice to see his training as a sailor come in in terms of him swimming I also didn't realise that sailors were trained in the arts of Harry Houdini but whatever <laughs> um, there was two things the, the first one was something I liked which is towards the end when you've Ben and the Doctor and Polly and Kirsty going over the plan. And Polly's like, so what, we're just meant to wait here for you? And Ben kind of makes the point of, you know, it would be safer if they stayed there. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Polly puts up a fuss and says, no, we're not going to sit around here waiting for you. And the Doctor says, okay, you can be in the boat. As opposed to Ben arguing the point stressing out over their safety or whatever he just says okay well what am I going to do now so like there's no argument Hmm. you know we've said before that like Ben is all about keeping Polly safe but he also recognises how strong she is in her own right and in this case it was a case of I would rather you stay here to stay safe I'm not staying here okay (laughs) no that was the end there was no big argument yeah do you know um it sort of reminded me a little bit of the novelization of the daleks Mm -hmm. where in the novelization barbara kind of has to fight to be able to go with them and then she kind of feels a bit stupid later because she's not really contributing and stuff and this is sort of like the inverse of that where polly doesn't have to fight to do what she wants to do yeah. Ben just respects her and says, yeah, no problem. There's no stopping the Duchess. Yeah. Um, the other thing, and this is what I wanted to ask you a question about, was one of the things that you and I both loved about Tenth Planet mm-hmm. was the effect killing the Cybermen had on Ben. Yes. And how beautifully that was done mm-hmm. in that story. Did you find, though, that at the start of this story, he was a bit careless with weapons? So, this is something that 
I like I initially kind of th- thought about it and was kind of like Jesus Christ man like you never you don't throw a fucking gun down on the thing but I would put it down to like yes it is a firearm but he probably isn't as familiar with that the firearms of that era like um even like the different types of pistols like so normally like, you know, a lot of the kind of the very famous ones for that time would be flintlock pistol which is like the cap that f- goes down and hits the spark and off it goes now if but there's then there's matchlock pistols which you have to use to like, keep an open flame to spark the powder so i would just put it down to his unfamiliarity with that firearm then again like you know, all firearms he should be treated with the same reverence yeah well, that, that's kind of my point like <laughs> yeah but um but i i would say that given the fact that it's an early flintlock pistol he he could have like literally shot it at them and he they still would have been safe (laughs) um but again with regards to kind of like that side of things um i had this impression like even though he had the gun on the lair he was like please don't make me use this please don't make me use this yeah and it's one of those things where because we don't have the footage yeah like that would have been all facial expressions and and that's missing mm. do you know um, yeah. actually a lot of this story in fairness would be reactionary mm. do you know reaction giving a nod giving a wink you know catching an eye and we're missing all of that interplay mm-hmm. um, nothing against the loose cannon guys obviously they did a great job as they always do but oh, without seeing that conflict in Ben that we both kind of assumed that he would have just based on his character again also with the sort of clueless slash callous nature in the way that he was talking to these people in the first place and actually doubling back the doctor as well like when Polly reads out what was written on that um, hat yeah. He throws it down on the ground. And again, because we're missing the footage, like, was that meant to be a, like, oh, for fuck's sake? Like, oh, the Jacobite skin. Like, <laughs> what was that meant to be? Because, like, yeah, like, that, that's very. It, that's very. It's very antagonistic for no reason. It, it's also very partisan of the Doctor to kind of yeah. pick one side over the other. Like, and. Like unless like you know he's actually like okay yes he picks one side over the other when he is actually involved in whatever circumstances there, but just to be an observer that it's I don't know yeah I said that whole bit at the beginning mm. did kind of have me going what are our heroes doing <laughs> <laughs> oh god they're gonna be Marco Polo <laughs> so how about <laughs> I never said he was a hero I just didn't say he was a villain <laughs> uh, so Polly next yeah so like the Polly's equally clueless about history mm. although I mean you made the point you know, A history is written by the victors also you know we're perhaps coming from a different perspective than a lot of people watching the show when it first aired mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have certainly met a number of people from Britain primarily. So mm. not from Northern Ireland, but like from 
Wales, Scotland and England who don't really know a whole lot about Irish-English relations. Uh, you know, I'm like, a lot of our interpersonal history is like a paragraph in a history book that they don't really go into much detail about. Like, so, it, it, it's actually, it's not even just our relationship with uh, Great Britain. It's, like, I was on a, I was at a con in England and there was an American person in our group and one of the guy, one of the Irish guys that was with us turned to this American person and said, do you know what, I have a question for you. Why are Native Americans so mad at you all the time? It was a legitimate question. And so this is the sort of thing is that if you kind of put yourself into Polly's side of things, Polly's whole, when we first meet her, she's an administrative assistant. So her whole thing would have probably been like office temp work. Like her education would have been in that style. Mm. And not everyone that travels with the doctor is going to know exactly what's going on in, in their history, things like that. So it's it, it is it, it's forgivable, all right. But I actually realize that if you think about it, the two anthems of the two countries involved, uh, God Save the King slash Queen and Flower of Scotland, deet have verses detailing kicking the shit out of each other. So, like, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a case of like, it's understandable for the character. Yeah. I just don't think it was acceptable for the story that both modern human companions were completely fucking clueless. And the doctor didn't try to fill in the blanks. Mm. Do you know? Um, but specifically about Polly, I think for me personally, mm-hmm. going out on a little bit of a limb, yes, this might be one of this might be, to date, Polly's strongest story. I am in complete agreement with you because um, this is her first solo mm. uh, uh, escapade. And yes, it gets off to a rocky start, but Jesus, does she come up good in it? Yeah, like really, immediately, really you know, yeah, she goes off to get water. She's still a bit weird with Kirsty, blah, blah, blah. But then it's like, we need to create a distraction. We're going to get them to chase us very focused constantly like what's the next plan what's the next plan i fell down a hole shit cool i have a way to get out there's red coats there i have another plan it was constant plan after plan after plan and you you kind of get the sense that like when herself and kirsty were trying to get weapons and stuff and they came back with like three weapons because who's going to sell a gun to a woman in 17 40s or whatever yeah and then the doctor comes in with like literally like a wheelbarrow full of stuff and she kind of gets sense that she's like oh well fuck you <laughs> i tried you bastard was before he stole them <laughs> she he, <laughs> she tried to purchase them oh <laughs> uh, excuse me no worries but like her level of cunning and intelligence in this it's mm. just it, like you get you get a hint of it in the smugglers when she does the whole like you know we're in service to a great and powerful warlock and I'm casting a spell you, like you get hints of that you all, so that's with the intelligence you also get hints of her cunning in Ten Planet with the whole I'm going to make coffee because that's all I as a simple girl can do wink wink nudge nudge that type of stuff mm. um, then as we said in Power of the Daleks she takes a step back because this is uh, the doctor's story yeah because yeah so whereas here now she's off on her own as I said oh she comes up good 
Like she, she she really really does. She really does. And like the, what I love about her is that she always comes up with a plan. Yeah. Whether it's using what very little she knows of history, because it does come up later. She's like, you do sell oranges, right? She's clearly trying to remember <laughs> stories or yeah. books that she's read or something like from her childhood growing up or whatever. Or whether she's using her knowledge of being able to read people and her feminine wiles. Like, yeah. oh, you know, the like- whole thing with... Um, Oh, what the... F- uh, Al- Aldrin on Finch, a.k.a. Yeah. Al- Algy. Algy. Like her, the whole thing with him... I, I, I could just... It's just brilliant, like... I, I just had this picture. Do you know what? Madam, after being encountered with you, I now seek the company of men. <laughs> just like, <laughs> like, I'm staying away from you. Oh, like, every time he sees her, it's just a case of, ah, no, not you. Uh, but in fairness, she did pay up with a little peck on the cheek. Yes. Yes, she which, did. you know... Um, the thing, the the main thing I have about Polly with this, like, and my my biggest takeaway is that it is so refreshing <laughs> after the last few months hmm. to see a female companion who can take care of herself and drive the plot. Yes, we've been missing that kind of since Barbara left. To be honest, Vicky didn't really do a lot of plot driving a lot of the time. No. When she was with Stephen. Um, so it's so... But it's definitely after Dodo. I mean, Dodo and Polly are like fucking night and day. Yeah. And the, the thing with... Uh, I think like, I would note here to say like that I'm looking forward to seeing how Polly will start to Barbara Jamie. You know, it'd be like mm. Mother Barbara. But the one... Like there's a... Okay, there's ob- the obvious difference between Barbara and Polly is that Polly is a very... She, like she does scream. She, and she has a re- very kind of fearful reactionary scream but once things have calmed down once you know she feels safe again that's when she starts to contribute that's when she starts to plan stuff like that whereas with Barbara it was literally a case of ah fuck what do I do this yeah in fairness though like I mean going story by story mm. I wouldn't think that Polly screams any more than Barbara does. I think the difference between Polly and Barbara and why it's apparently a bit why it's a bit more obvious with Polly is because Polly is very girly mm. and very open. Whereas Barbara was quite reserved. Now the still amaze balls. Yes. But more reserved. Yeah. That teacher persona was a large part of who she was. Whereas Polly's a very free, sort of fun loving Whatever, so... I, I think with Polly, it's a case of, like, the, like, the first episode cliffhanger, like, it's it's so weak because it's... She looks up and she sees stand, someone standing over them with a knife and it's just like... <gasps> and then it's like, oh, it's Kirsty, who you saw earlier on brandishing a knife at you. <laughs> In fairness, it's dark. She can't fucking see for shit. I know, but it's like... I, I just, I just like... Like... <laughs> I was going to compare it to the the Romans one where it literally falls off you know the terrace ends of the cliff and falls off but that's just that's just perfection no other cliffhanger will ever be as good as that as far as I'm concerned oh, what it actually reminds me of now that we're talking about it is um, the android invasion yes. there's a bit where Sarah falls off a cliff oh yeah <laughs> She's just lying on a slope. <laughs> <laughs> it's so brilliant. 
It's like, tell, <laughs> but yeah, it reminds me a bit of that now that we talk about it. Um, but I, I, we can agree that this is a very strong performance by Polly. Oh, definitely. Like, I have, like, I knew nothing about Polly before mm. we started this watch through. I hadn't seen a single story with her in it. I'd seen pictures of her. I am being blown away by this character. Every, starting with the War Machines, I am being blown away every week mm. by its character. And I'm really looking forward to seeing her going forward. And again, another kind of indication of don't judge the classic period until... No, if you watch it and she's not for you, because we've said before, like, that's, you know, fucking grand. But it, this is a case of don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, or don't judge a companion by... Do you know that comic strip that was done yeah. of all the female companions screaming doctor and then you've got Rose throwing her tantrum at the end being like, I thought I was the only one. Do not judge the classic companions by that comic strip. And as I always say, whenever that comic strip comes up, justice for Barbara, because she's not on it. Yeah. Um, but don't judge them by that comic yeah. strip because that's not who these characters were. No. So will we do Kirsty first and then Jamie or? Yeah, I was thinking the same. Okay, so Kirsty, I don't have a whole lot to say for her other than she's like a proper Highland lass. Um, <laughs> and like, I wonder like, you know, if the Laird had died, would she have joined the crew? Um, because eff- effectively speaking, without the Laird, like, I know it's kind of, it's going to sound very kind of patriarchal or whatever, but if, without the Laird, the clan dies. Because hmm. if she marries, she no longer inherits the clan mclaren name she takes on the name of her husband and so on which is a shame and i think that like you know if jamie hadn't been the one to go with her and would go with the tardis crew would she have been a good fit i think she could have been i think she could have been so the thing with kirsty is i also don't have a whole lot to say about her in the grand scheme of things she's a bit of a naysayer like constantly Mm. And you've Polly constantly trying to drag her up by her shoelaces (laughs) just fucking come on but it's completely understandable as well. Do you? And she does get stuck in. She just, you know, she can't see her way out of the situation that she did. Again, Polly may not know this period of history specifically, but she knows history broadly. Yeah. She knows that if Kirsty just stays out of the way or whatever, that she'll be fine. Um, The thing about Kirsty though, is I'm a bit mixed on her character because... I would have loved to have seen her do more. Hmm. So she was the native companion in that duo. And so the duo of Polly and Kirsty. She was the native companion who knew the lay of the land, who knew how everything operated and stuff. And she didn't really come up with any ideas herself. She was just following Polly. At the same time, though, Kirsty was a one-off character and it gave us the time for Polly to shine which I loved. So it's kind of this catch-22 where I kind of wish she'd done a little bit more. But at the same time, her only doing as much as she did meant that Polly got to shine and Polly's the character that we're going to have going forward. So it's kind of like a catch-22 for me. One one thing I will say, though, is that I did love that moment where she stood up to Polly over the ring. Yeah. Because I've seen it in other things where the more knowledgeable visitor from the future will take advantage of the uncultured savage and whatever, where it's literally a case of she pulls out a knife and goes, back off, bitch, or I'll cut you. Yeah, and again, like, you sort of... You could maybe argue she should have been a bit more honest with Polly about the ring 
Also, maybe don't go around actually fucking wearing it. Yeah. But at the same time, she doesn't know this woman very well. And this woman seemed delighted that the English turned up. So. Yeah, that, that that's it. It's like, was it your, no, I am not a spy. <laughs> Ooh, what lovely jewellery you have. Yeah, but don't actually wear this really important, apparently very easily recognised ring just out and about. Well, that being said, Algie didn't recognise it. Perkins didn't recognise it. Did they get a close look at her hand? Well, Perkins was about to play cards with her, and of course, like you need to see people's, you'll be seeing people's fingers. Well, yeah, but like uh, as soon as mm. um, the doctor showed it to Gray, mm. he knew immediately what it was. Yeah. The point is that it was dangerous to wear it. Yeah, yeah. Put it, it in was, your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a secret pocket into your skirt and just yeah. pop it in there. Uh, but yeah, like so, like I know, like it's it is a kind of a catch twenty two because like you want to see more development, but at the same time, the lack of development led to a really standout moment for Polly, who yeah. is the ongoing companion for the yeah, show. Yeah, I think had they tried to bring Kirsty on board, I think Kirsty would have been. I actually think she'd been a really good fit, to be honest. Mm. Um, I think had Kirsty continued on, it would have bothered me a lot more. <laughs> yeah. At the moment, it's just a sort of like, oh, she could have been kind of, she could have been cooler than she was. Does she fall into the camp of like Sir William de Preu, like who could have been just like awesome? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> she's actually better than de Preu because de Preu disappeared after two episodes, and Kirsty at least stayed till the end. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. De Preu's out there somewhere, <laughs> doing something. I, yeah, I I I like to believe that he's that uh, knight at the end of the Last Crusade. <laughs> That's why I had Canon Live sticking fucking to it. <laughs> so, how about we move on to Jamie? Yeah, I don't have uh, I don't have too much to say about Jamie in this first story. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, it was a four parter. We were getting some great development from Polly, some very good comedic moments from the Doctor and stuff. Yeah. So, Jamie wasn't really given. Um, a hero moment like he wasn't like out leading the charge or whatever he's the piper he's not the well, he's not the guy leading you know whatever wait, he does have two hero moments one where he leads the the prisoners up onto deck to fight the sailors hmm. and also when he i really wish again we could see it where he, he like swings like robin hood style yeah into trask to save ben um, but what I mean is that he's not the one no no he's not the one rallying coming up with an idea rallying yeah, yeah, the troops yeah. right like, he's not doing that which is fine hmm. because what he does do is protect and defend yes uh, my first note here is that Jamie McCrimmon is loyalty personified because he absolutely refuses to leave the Laird's side for a single moment throughout the entire thing yeah um, and like obviously look you clan culture it's very you know like you like your lord your lord is your bond you know your laird is your bond and he obviously has a very important role as like the ceremonial piper for the family you know mm. um but like he he is like you know he's a good he's a brave and he stands up for every, like his friends and you know he's a good fighter um i think he'll be a fun addition to the crew because i can't wait to see one his action man team up teams up team ups with ben 
and the inevitable My Fair Lady interactions that he has with Polly and the Doctor. So this is an interesting thing, right? I loved his interactions with Ben. Yeah. (laughs) Because they are literally speaking two completely fucking different languages. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm sort of imagining, like, Ben using, like, Cockney rhyming slang and (sighs) Jamie just using general Scottishness. Yeah, just Gaelic. (laughs) Or Gaelic terminology, but also just his own general form of expression and the two of them just missing points completely yeah. <laughs> like conversation breakdown uh, completely no idea what's going on between the two of them why does he keep calling me china i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly but i think i think it would be brilliant i'm really looking forward to seeing them together the thing that i find interesting though again and this is this is so this is why rewatching this with you is such an interesting thing and why you're watching all of this stuff in order rather than the original way I watched it, which is mm. piggly-piggly and all the best. I've said that my knowledge of the second Doctor is very limited to the War Games, which is his last story. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So my knowledge of him as um, the hero of the story was incredibly limited. And I had always kind of thought and... Largely because of the Jamie McCrimmon effect, which will come into play mm-hmm. in the weeks to come, that you keep mentioning to me in general life. <laughs> I was sort of led to believe that the second Doctor needed Ben and needed Jamie to be the action man in the same way that Doc Bill needed Ian and needed Stephen. I think... Had it been Kirsty instead of Jamie who'd gone with them, how about I don't feel like there's a gap that Jamie is filling. Mm. Do you know? Whereas when Ian and Barbara left, there was a very obvious gap mm. that needed to be filled, and Stephen was the one who, while I ended up not liking him as a character, he was a good fit for that missing hole. Like that needed that role that needed to be filled. Stephen did fit in it. Hmm. Um, I am surprised by how much the Doctor is doing for himself. But like, see, this is the thing now, right? Is that, and even if even if you want to go back to Doc uh, Doc Bill, for I w- yeah, like for at least all of the classic Doctors, hmm. there is this running theme that yes. A, an action man character benefits the crew because they're young, they're virile, they're strong, whatever the case is. However, the doctor is more than capable of taking care of himself without them. Mm. A la um, the rescue, the Romans, the the Dallas master plan, yeah. the, the time meddler, because you know, he kicks people in the dick. <laughs> <laughs> and like, obviously you've got... John Pertwee, who is we known as the Aikido Doctor, uh, but like uh, everyone up up until at least um, Christopher Eccleston, they're physically capable of taking care of themselves. But the whole essence of the Doctor is that he shouldn't have to do that because his whole thing is solve everything by as peaceful a means as possible. Yeah, so I get all that. Yeah, I just wasn't expecting it to be as. Yeah. Okay, now I can imagine the three of them 
Ben, Doc, Pat, and Jamie yeah. going off together to do something that Ian would have had to do by himself. Mm. You know, if, if we're to go with that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, 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 I, I see it. Um, but see, like, again, he's just full of surprises. Mm. Indeed. <laughs> And so I think that's everything that I have for Jamie, other than the fact that I think he would be a very good addition to the crew. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how their interactions are going to go. I've been loving Ben and Polly so far, so to introduce another character into that dynamic, yeah, I'm going to be really, really curious to see how that's going to play out. So, on to the villains. Yes. So, we have three villains to discuss. We have Finch... Trask and Grey because God love and poor old Perkins is just a simpleton yeah <laughs> um, if we start with Finch right now, I, I don't necessarily consider Finch to be a villain you see now this is the thing right is that I was thinking about I was thinking back about it and while Finch isn't like you know, he's one of those things where he's an antagonist via circumstance because he's a British officer and obviously our heroes are tied in with the Jacobites so he is mm. in effect going to be an adversary to them but like at the very end he comes good not because of like he has some sort of you know i'm going to side with the jacobites now i'm going to become a turncoat it's no profiting off slaves is against the law of the crown yeah They're, i'm going to bust you on this yeah the reason why i wouldn't necessarily class him as a villain of this story mm-hmm. is it's a villain purely by circumstance, which is yeah. he is an English officer. Hmm. That's it. But he's also kind of your typical purchased commission oh, officer. Oh, he, he's he's a tough. He's an absolute tough. I mean, like for fuck's like, sake, his name is spelled it, with two Fs. <laughs> and his name is Aldnod. <laughs> um, <laughs> he himself. So, other than the fact that, like, obviously. He would have had to authorise the hanging, even though the sergeant went off and went to do it without mm-hmm. him or whatever. Other than the capture at the beginning and getting caught up in Polly's diversion, he does nothing against our characters for the rest of the story. Yeah. And I I, I, I get that, but I... Partially because of it just didn't come up. Partially because he doesn't want anything to fuck with you with Polly because he just wants her to leave him alone. <laughs> the, the, that blonde girl beat me up and took my lunch money. Which is literally what happened. Like. Yeah. Um, so, like, he's a villain... The, he's a villain to Kirsty. Yeah. He's not a villain to Polly. He's a pawn to Polly. <laughs> I... This is a this is an interesting thing now that we've come to come across as of late in you know we'll say what like the last ten stories worth of stuff mm. where we have characters that we've classified as allies or villains but usually fall into the other camp via circumstance like if you go back as far as the massacre you have not Nicholas but. I'm sure to call him Emma Thompson's dad because yeah. <laughs> but like, he's a complete and utter fucking prick. Yeah. But he's kind of on the side of the angels in the story because he's friends with Nicholas and he's uh, friends with Admiral um, de Coligny. Whereas, like, last week we talked about Hensel and I was like, you know, Hensel, he's just an incompetent fucking bureaucrat who gets Quinn to do everything for him and he reaps all the rewards. But 
he's not antagonistic to our heroes, but yet he's an antagonist of the story. Yeah. So, like sometimes, and these characters, like they are kind of important to the story. Like, so, like, where can you categorize them other than just put in circumstantial? <laughs> Algernon was there. Yes. If you need a man to be there, Algernon Finch is your man. <laughs> Don't ask Particularly him to do if Polly steals his money and his ID and a lock of his hair. What was with taking a lock of his hair? What the fuck was that meant to prove? I, as in like, you know, a bit of like, I know Algernon Finch very well. Maybe. I, I don't know about you, but I never used to cut the hair of people that I knew very well. Yeah. That's creepy as fuck, Polly. <laughs> she's, a, she's a collector. That's fucking uh, Hannibal Lecter shit, like. Yeah. Uh, I'm just reminded of, like, someone asked me before to describe a potential employee, and I felt kind of bad about it, but I was like, I said, like, if you need someone to sit in a chair, he is your man. If you need him to do something while in that chair, anyone else will do. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think that's a case of Algernon Finch in this one. Although, in fairness, kudos to him at the end, though. Oh, well, like, yeah. Cause, like, like, when like, he's like, like, no... She told me everything. Yeah. A, he believes her. Mm-hmm. Don't really know why. Other than the fact that she gave back the ID like she said she would and whatever. But like, he's taking no shit, which I, I, which I really liked in fairness to him. Although I will say like he was going, I can imagine him just kind of going to grey. was it? Look, sir, I am perfectly willing to hang these men legally. However, selling them for profit, for shame on you. <laughs> hey, one's illegal and the other one isn't. <laughs> um, cool. So now how about we actually move on to like people that we can agree are villains? Yeah. <laughs> Perkins. It was, a, it was a surprise all along. No. Uh, Trask and Grey. So who do you want to go with first? Uh, what we go up with, I would... What, what I deem to be the totem pole is Trask and then Grey at the top. Cool. I don't know uh, if you disagree. Well, like... Or are they sort of level pegging for you? I think they're level pegging because of what they each represent in terms of uh, threat level. Mm. To, um, so, do I just like flip a coin? <laughs> Heads of Trask's tails, it's not Grey. <laughs> Heads is ta- it's Trask. Tails is not grey. So exactly. what Paddy's saying is let's go with Trask. <laughs> okay, Paddy, what were your thoughts on Trask? Alright. Um, just because like, he's there in front of me right now and I'm just going to fucking say it. Um, so, he reminded me of very much like Pike from The Smugglers. Mm. In the, uh, in the not sense- from Star Trek. Different Pike. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, in the sense of I never feel comfortable when he's on screen. Mm. Even, when, even when I know that the heroes have a surefire like success I don't feel comfortable when he's there no I feel the same way about Grey but entirely differently um, like so even at the end like I was waiting for him like to do like some serious damage to like you know like either like you know finish off the Laird or finish off Mackay or really hurt Ben and I also don't like the fact that there's no confirmation that he's dead all, all you're told is that he falls off the side of the ship yeah, I don't think he is dead yeah, so if Ben survived, then he surely fucking survived. So I would, l- I'd be curious to know if there's an expanded media, be it either an audio drama or a book or whatever that deals with, you know, Highlanders Two: Trask's Revenge, <laughs> which would be a better Highlander Two than the fucking actual movie Highlander Two. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I have like three notes about Trask. Right. Right. First note. Asshole. <laughs> Succinct. I like it. It's what he is. He's a royal fucking asshole and a mutineer. Hmm. So fuck you, Trask. If I heard the word swab one more fucking time, the man has a very limited vocabulary. Yeah. And swab came up a lot. Maybe he's a former surgeon. <laughs> swab. It either that or he like <laughs> he uses the word swab the way I use the word fuck, <laughs> which is for everything. <laughs> We can change the rule of Paul's time traveling team drinking game to be every time Trask said swab in this story, you have to drink. Yeah. You'll be fucked by the end of the second episode. It's it's one or the other. Don't use both at the same time. Other because like, you know, we don't have a waiver for you to sign. <laughs> the last thing is out of all the characters in this story, and this is this is just my personal opinion, I think Trask is probably the most one dimensional. Oh yeah, of course. Out of all of them. But that Which, being said, like his dimension is incredibly terrifying. Yeah, it, it's one horrible dimension. <laughs> but it's one dimension. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, mm. particularly when it comes to... Particularly, particularly, I think, when it comes to historical stories, we have to have some characters that we can just say, this character is this yeah. So this character is evil, or this character is good, or this character is dumb, or this character. Some characters you just need to have. Here is your stamp, and Trash stamp is asshole. Like for four-part stories, one-dimensional villains are not a bad thing because, no. as we've seen before, they can be incredibly good. You know, mm. longer stories. Yes, I would say they require more than one dimension. Um, but here. He suits his purpose purpose perfectly. Yes. Which, which, is to, which is to annoy the fuck out of Trisha whenever he says swab. Yeah, it, it just got so annoying. Cool. I think it's just they also used the same, like, face shot every time he said it. And so it literally felt like I was in... Ironic, given the day that we're recording, it felt like Groundhog Day. It's just the same fucking scene over and over again. And now we're going to go on to Grey, who's actually a villain right now for me because I realise the actor's first name is David. Yes. And, his, and the character's name is Grey. I now have David Grey songs stuck in my head. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not objecting to David Grey's song. I think his music is quite nice. Right now, though, it's distracting as fuck. <laughs> Which one do you have stuck in your head? I don't know the, the, the title, but it's that one. Ooh, yeah, hey. Ooh, yeah, ha. Da, 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 da. Like, whatever it is. No fucking clue. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, David. I butchered your song, but <laughs> oh, I know what one it is. Yeah, yeah, Babylon. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I I did have to sing it in my head, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. Thankfully, <laughs> I didn't sing that loud. Um, Gray. Yes. Slave trader prick. Mm-hmm. Does he remind you of anyone? He reminds me of lots of people. Should he be reminding me of someone in particular? He reminds me of Selcheria from the Romans. Yeah. Actually, no, yeah. Not as physically threatening, 
but at the same time, because I said like with Gray, Gray is the physical threat, like the physical threat, like Pike. Mm. Whereas I would say Gray is more like the mental or the 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 cunning threat, like Sauteria was. No, Sauteria was both combined, but because like they're both dealing in slaves, they're very reminiscent of one another. I think. Yeah, like the thing with Gray is that like everything must be legal, quote unquote legal of course mm. contracts and everything meaning oh he's a lawyer like he's a stereo he's such a he stereotypical such a lawyer i know of like i know the law i know the best way for me to make money and no one can charge me with anything because mm. i'm in charge of the prisoners I didn't sell them into slavery. I gave them an option of signing a work contract, which they did. Never mind the fact that probably half of them can't read it. He's like those scumbag attorneys that always get away uh, scot-free in the episodes of Law and Order SVU. I hate yeah. it. Oh. Exactly. That's exactly who Grey is. And that's why like when, when you say, like, oh, who does Grey remind you of? I'm like, who doesn't he remind me of? Um, you know, uh. even, you know... In fictional media, even in real life, oh. we have lawyers like this. We have just people, like we have like people from all walks of life like this. Yeah. Um, also, <laughs> question for you. Did you get the sense that he never actually pays for anything? Oh, big time. He makes Perkins foot the bill for everything. Mm. And that's Perkins's own money. And as a kind of a, I suppose, a side note to that, which do you think is sweeter? The fact that, like, your uh, Grey essentially gets, um, you know, arrested for breaking the law. <sighs> Lawyers. <laughs> or the fact that Perkins' treatment of him came back to bite him in the ass. His treatment of Perkins, you mean? His treatment of Perkins, yeah, that's what it is. Um, personally, I think it's the fact that he got arrested. Hmm. It's the fact that, like, someone like Finch, who's as thick as a plank... Was the one to bring him down. I find much more gratifying in my own heart. Because Perkins... He treats him horribly. But not to any sort of level that we haven't seen before with that type of character. Yeah. Do you know? Um, I think what's probably the ultimate... Getting stuck in Grace Craw isn't the fact that, like, oh, after everything he did to Perkins, he gets arrested. It's after everything he did to Perkins, Perkins is fucking off to France. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I, I, I was going to sing, I was going to sing La Marseillaise, but I don't know, actually know the words to it, and I don't want to insult any more else that I have to, that I have on this one. I can just imagine singing Flower of Scotland, though. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Which I, I have to say is the greatest rugby anthem of all time. Um, now, are, are we done with the character discussion? Or is there anything else you want to discuss about Grey? No. Uh, Slave Trader Prick, I think, was an cool. accurate submission. Uh, so I pretty much said everything I want. But there's one thing that just popped into my head. Mm-hmm. And it kind of details in relation to something that happened last week. I think it happened this week as well. You used to mock me for the when I kept saying the phrase, that's as maybe. And you said, like, no one ever says that phrase. The Doctor has said it multiple times in these two <laughs> stories. So, ha. 
do you know this is not the first time I've had this thought in recent years? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, it's quite a common phrase. <laughs> you were just the first person in real life I ever heard say it. Because it's the doctor has said it several times. Also, I'm rereading, well, re-listening really, uh, to the Origin trilogy by A.G. Riddle, and it gets mentioned a lot as well. And every time they mention it, I'm like, people really use that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Is it not be that as it may? <laughs> that is maybe it just so. And even though yes, other people have said it, it still sounds fucking bonkers in my ears. I don't know why. I don't know why. But given the fact that I took the royal piss out of you last week. Yes. I will put my hand up and say, I am sorry that nearly 10 years ago, I made fun of you for using that phrase. Does my apology pass muster, Paddy? Moving swiftly along. Thank you. Um, <laughs> your apology is accepted. So... <laughs> So, guys, um, as always, we're now going to give our overall scoring of the story. So, Trish, do you want to go first or will I go first? Uh, you go first. I've cool. been going first for a lot of this. Cool. So, I suppose, look, the long and the short of it is, is that I really enjoyed the story. Um, and it's a bittersweet note because it's the last of the pure historicals. And I quite enjoyed the pure historical story, like with one glaring exception. <laughs> Still available for sale if anyone wants it. <laughs> But it, it it is kind of a bittersweet thing that for budgetary reasons that they had to stop making them. But I suppose plus the interest wasn't there as much as the pseudoscience, sorry, pseudo-historicals and just the wealth of futuristic and alien life that Doctor Who was bringing us. Mm. Ben and Polly have the great performances in this. As we said, shaky start. But looking back on it now, it's kind of an educational thing for them to kind of go, look, maybe we do have to reassess our perceptions of stuff as we go on um but the fact that they got to stretch their wings and solo adventures is fantastic we talked about jamie being interesting member of the crew i think it'll be cool and i hope it's a case of like that he kind of bumbles and recovers as opposed to just bumbles his way the entire time you know Mm. and like again troughton is doing a great job of really lending credence to William Hartnell's endorsement of him as the only person that could take on the role. Um, so I would give this a 3.75 out of 5. Not bad. Not bad. So for me, I have to be honest, right? Mm-hmm. We've spoken in the past about... I've been a fan of Doctor Who for over a decade. I've watched a fair few classic stories i have some classic stories i've watched 10 15 times but there were some stories that i skipped and troughton was a doctor that i skipped because so much of his stuff was missing mm-hmm. i just leapt over him entirely except the war games and then i moved on in my life but doing this podcast in this format and reviewing the missing stories the way we have brought up how much I was missing by skipping them. Hmm. 
that bearing all that in mind right which we've discussed all of that in the past bearing all that in mind given the fact that we took a bit of a break over the holidays right so we did the three ramblings the two ourselves one the guys we'd also kind of recorded a little bit in advance yeah and i watched this story yesterday (laughs) also bearing in mind that power of the daleks is animated tenth planet is present slash animated it has been over two months since i've had to watch a story Hmm. with the loose canon recreations it took me a while to get back into the swing of it. Again, this is nothing against the loose cannon guys. They're awesome. Yeah. However, you have to kind of be prepared to read and listen and watch the pictures all at the same time. Oh. <laughs> like I'm someone who I watch things with subtitles on. I I don't know why. I just watch things with subtitles on. When you're watching a loose cannon production, you're not reading subtitles, you're reading description. You have to be actively paying attention. Took me a while to get back into that groove with this story, which I, I texted you about it yesterday, right? Yeah. Took me a little bit while to get back into it. That being said, once I got into that rhythm, I was really into it. I was really curious to see what was going to happen next. I really wanted to see how the Doctor and Polly were going to save Ben. I was really curious how the Jamie thing was going to work out because, again, I knew that he was going to be sticking around just from general knowledge. So I really enjoyed it. I think from a historical story perspective and as the last pure historical story for many years possibly ever depending on your definition i think it has everything you want from a historical story Mm -hmm. it has drama it has intrigue it has action it has comedy each of our main cast got a shining moment or two Mm -hmm. not necessarily including jamie although like i said he did have his moments as well i think it was a great story Two things bothered me. Hmm. The first was the whole thing of Ben and Polly and their own knowledge of history. And not even their own knowledge of history, but like not being able to accept what's clearly being played out in front of them. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that none of these people like you because you're English. Don't be praising the English coming over the hill. That's not helping. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. Um, that I think could have been played better. It could have actually been a really nice moment of like, you know, like playing on, you know, the way Ben calls Polly Duchess and the whole Mm. class difference that there is between the two of them. It would have been a nice reversal if you had Ben teaching Polly something. Yeah. I think, I think they missed a trick on that personally. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, and again, this is possibly because we only have the audio the doctor's accent drove me absolutely mental. <laughs> I don't find accents like that funny. I find them annoying. Hmm. And more than a little bit racist. <laughs> and for me, because it, it, it kept coming back. And every time I thought it was done, <laughs> it came back again. Um, So for me, I think... Could you have done the story without him being the German doctor? I don't think so. I think the the story works the way it is. But I think because I didn't get the facial features to go with it, I only ever got the same three pictures of him. Mm. It just started grating a little bit. And as well, like the fact that he picked like the, that particular character because at that stage, the uh, George the, the second or George the third was the king of England. And they're obviously, they're, Hanover, they're from Hanover. So... 
saying that I'm from the country that your king is from, it's an incredibly smart move by the doctor. Yeah. So I don't think you could have done it without him yeah. doing that. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. it w- I don't think it would have worked the same oh, yeah. way. Oh no, I'm agree- like I'm agreeing. Like I'm yeah. saying, like, I don't think it would have. But the accent didn't work for me. <laughs> In terms of overall thoughts, though, mm. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this TARDIS team is going to work together going forward. We have two modern companions. We have one companion from the past and a doctor who's very different from everything I've seen before. So for me, this should make some really interesting stories going forward. That being said, I gave this a 3.5. And just one thing that I kind of, I meant to say it in my notes about Jamie, just when you said about a performance by Jamie. Hmm. If you think about it, he left the last members of his family and clan to help strangers, hmm. which is, a, again, an incredible trait to have in a companion going forward. Oh yeah. Because he knew that like, Jesus, their chances are better with me and yeah, I'll be a fugitive but at least I can do the right thing. Mm. Um, also, just, uh, I'd like to kind of, we got a very nice message from Earl Green who does the Retrogram podcast uh, about the Adventure in Space and Time thing we did with the, the two lads, uh, Dan and Paul. And he said that he loved all his favourite podcasters being together. Mm. And I, Earl, if you're listening, I'm glad I gave you a good chuckle over who's tried to kill Sidney Newman. <laughs> and Shane messaged earlier on, to, like Shane is another long-term listener, and he said that uh, last week was probably his favourite episode, but I think that might have to do with Trish taking the piss out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Shane, I'm here to oblige. <laughs> so that's it for this week guys um yeah i have one final note before we before we're going um just because i have my running tally of our averages and so far season four Mm -hmm. riding high we're averaging 4.13 for this season so far that's pretty good which bearing in mind that season three finished at the war machines yeah but finished at an average of 3.06 3.06 for the two of us with mine being 2.94 for the season it's about that your average my average and then our combined average yeah. is 4.13 i think season four is looking to be a right it, it's in it's a great season so far and like as we've kind of said like you know when we we're doing our scorings of it it's like we take the factors of the companions the story and other stuff into it so like while the story may be complete naff the characters are quite interesting or mm. you know vice versa great story shite characters or it's the gunfighters yes <laughs> or it's the gunfighters <laughs> which for me again is always saved by William Hartnell just having a fucking great time uh, as you may have noticed I'm trying to swear a lot more so that Trish doesn't feel as conscious about it <laughs> <laughs> that's fine they couldn't stop me when I was in school you're not going to stop me now cool um, so yes we have our new addition to the TARDIS team and we're about to head on our next adventure so Trish tell us what is our next adventure yeah so next week we're going to see how Jamie handles travelling through time and space Ooh. as our team encounter the underwater menace Ooh. Uh, it better not be jellyfish fuck them <laughs> <laughs> oh I just um, remembered a thing <laughs> Is this something that we can talk about on air, or is this something like you know? Oh, let's just, just leave. Gregory when Dudley yelled at the two of us that there was jellyfish yeah. in the water, and we just belted it up the beach. Oh, bastards! <laughs> so until next week, guys. Bye. Bye.